Ruth Clayton is an ordained Presbyterian minister and a hospital chaplain. She has spent her career offering comfort and spiritual support to those whose bodies are failing, to those who are dying. At this point in her life, she is experiencing some body challenges of her own. She and her husband, David, have been thrilled about the prospect of becoming parents and for the past two years have been trying to conceive. This has launched them into an unexpected journey of medical infertility intervention. In our conversation, Ruth and I talk about what has been involved in the process so far, what they've tried, what they've decided not to try, and how her heart, her soul, her relationship are doing in the midst of this process. It's a wonderfully open and vulnerable interview, and I'm so glad that you've decided to listen to it. This is Parenting Reimagined, a place where the conversation goes beyond what we do as parents, and we take the time to consider what parenting teaches us, how it transforms us, and what being parents means for the landscape of our inner lives. I am Sherry Walling. Well, would you begin by introducing yourself and saying a bit about your family? So my name is Ruth Clayton, and I am married to my husband, David Clayton, and we live down near Los Angeles. We have one cat, and her name is Oreo, and she's three and a half years old. And David and I have been married now for a little over two and a half years. It will be three years in October. I am a ordained Presbyterian pastor, but my concentration and my more specific ministry is in healthcare chaplaincy. So I have been a chaplain for almost nine years, and I started off as a hospice chaplain for five years, and then after I got married, moved to LA, and worked in a hospital as the palliative care chaplain for almost two years. And at the end of those two years, I was feeling like I needed to take a break. I was starting to have signs of burnout. I was starting to have physical signs of stress and anxiety. And it felt like it was just a good time to leave and self-initiated sabbatical. Part of it, too, was David and I had started trying to have children about a year into our marriage. And I realized that I needed to take care of my body, that maybe the stress of my job, the physical symptoms that I was having, such as heart palpitations and heartburn and and all those things, maybe were signs that my body was telling me it's time to kind of take a break. And I thought, well, I need to maybe focus on trying to get pregnant. And it's been about 10 months now that I've been on the sabbatical, and I'm starting to get ready to go back. I think it's so I'm going to be looking for jobs in the next you know, few months to a year and see what I can find. So for the past 10 months, you've stepped back from work and been trying to have a baby. And I'm guessing even before that, you've been developing a mother's heart and beginning to see yourself as a mother. I wonder if you would talk maybe more about your journey towards motherhood. I grew up with three older brothers. And they began having children um, when I was only eight years old. From a very early age, I was around kids a lot. And I babysat from a very early age. And I was always helping with in the nursery. Or then as I got older, 
I worked at the camp and was a camp counselor in college and after college I worked with youth groups a lot and so I naturally was around kids and so I think I always imagined that I would be a mom but first and foremost I was dreaming of being a wife and I always thought because of what I wanted to do in life that I would get married later. I left Fresno right after high school, went away to college, went away to seminary, lived out of the country for a while and traveled a lot. And I was 34 when I met David and no, 33 and then we got married when I was 34 and so I thought oh okay good I kind of reached my my dream in terms of being a wife and so then of course the idea of having kids came into the picture and a lot of the questions came from our family so when are you when are you guys going to start having kids when are you going to start trying being older I knew okay we can't wait too long was there a moment that you decided you were ready to try or decided that you really wanted to have a child? I would say almost a year into our marriage, we started really talking about, okay, should we start to try? Because there wasn't a, a real profound moment, I would say, but I think just through talking and, and listening to each other, we just felt like, okay, this, we're at a good place. We can, we can try. We didn't want to rush through our first year of being married because we, we dated long distance and then got married and I moved down here. And so we wanted to really not rush the first, that whole transition period. So you've been trying for about a year and a half? It's been about, it'll be two years this month. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you've been trying for two years. And what's, what's been involved in the process up to this point? It has been a unexpected journey and and not one that we really thought we'd have to be on. I say that because my cycle is so textbook perfect that I didn't think it would take this long to get pregnant. And I you know, honestly we didn't go into it blindly. I knew, as I said before, a lot of my friends have struggled with infertility, but we really did not expect it to take this long. My mom was 40 when she got pregnant and 41 when she had me. So I thought, oh, my mom could do it. You know, I won't have any problems. So, you know, I got the books. I got taking charge of your fertility. I began charting my cycle and my temperature. I took the ovulation tests. I paid attention to my nutrition and my exercise. I was doing everything that I thought was the right, the right things to do in order to have the best outcome. So then about six to seven months into it, um, I spoke with the doctor who is not my doctor anymore, but she said, oh, just give it a year. And she kind of just wrote it off as, you're 35, just give it a year. And I just didn't, something inside of me just didn't feel right about that assessment. At 10 months into it, we decided that we would go and see a fertility specialist. And he ran all the tests and did the whole diagnostic Whole protocol. Basically everything was coming back normal with me and with my husband. And so the doctor again just said, well just keep trying and, and just give it a few more months and see, let's see what happens. So we did and then in December of 2012 I had the dye tests to see if my tubes were blocked. And then in January we got the results back and it showed that my right fallopian tube was blocked. We were, David and I were both pretty surprised about that. But it also gave us a little more 
peace of mind knowing that it wasn't anything that we were doing wrong and that it was just a an issue of anatomy. Then we had to decide, well, what are we going to do now? And our doctor gave us the options of having laparoscopic surgery to try to go in and unblock the tube and see what's going on. The idea of intrauterine insemination was also on the table, although our doctor didn't think it would really matter that much since everything else was already working. Um, pretty well. And the third option, and the, the one that all the doctors were pushing for, was IVF, in vitro fertilization. We had a lot to kind of think about and decide. And over the course of between January and April, David and I both decided we wanted to have the surgery. We wanted to really see what was going on and make sure that it really was blocked and could it be unblocked. And if so, then we wanted to give that a chance. So we had the surgery, I had the surgery on May 20th, and unfortunately it wasn't that successful. He really couldn't do much unblocking. He is not sure that it's going to stay open as it starts to heal, and so what do we do now? And all the doc my our fertility specialist and then my OBGYN, they all recommended IVF. We met with our doctor and he went over the whole process of IVF and it was pretty overwhelming. Uh, so we went with him, and then we met with the nurse right after we met with him, and then we met with the financial counselor. So it's like they just like boom, 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 like three people all in a row. And David and I walked out, and we both looked at each other, and we said, this is not for us. And we just knew. We just kind of knew that it wasn't what our path should be. Um, several reasons, I think. Well, it's $17,000 for one, and our insurance doesn't cover any of it. So that was that was a huge expense for only a 50% chance, not even a guarantee. And I think it was pretty clear for both David and I that we just didn't want to be under that much stress to do IVF. And so we have decided just, you know, that in June, the last couple months, that we weren't going to do it. So after talking about it and after kind of recovering from that surgery, David and I both felt like we needed to give insemination a try, at least a fair chance. I talked to my doctor and I said, I know you don't feel like IUI would help, but we want to try it. So two weeks ago, we went in and did the insemination process. So I had to take Clomid from day five to day 10, and then go in on day 12 for an ultrasound to see what side I was ovulating on side and there was a big old follicle which was great. It went, then I had to do all this blood work and the blood work has to come back before they can do the insemination. And the blood work was not coming back and not coming back and so we thought we missed our window. But we still tried naturally of course during that whole time. <laughs> so then one morning on Saturday they called and said the blood work's back, you need to come in. And so we just like rushed in as fast as we could. So David had to give his sample which is very awkward. It's it's just such a weird process. You go in the room and they have videos, pornography videos and magazines and dark and it's just be it's just weird and get it get that part done real quick. And then we wait an hour while they wash the sperm and like get it ready. And then we came back and then I go in and they use a catheter to uh, inject the sperm past the cervix all the way up into the uterus kind of uncomfortable because it feels like a wire is going through your cervix and 
and then you have to like lay there for 10 minutes and then off you go. After you leave 380 bucks at the door on your way out. <laughs> we are in the phase of waiting for the results of that to see what happens. It sounds like you began the process sort of knowing that it wasn't a guarantee that you would have children or you would have children within a time frame that you were expecting. But I also, I feel like I hear in our conversation some pain and disappointment and, you know, this process of hoping and waiting and then something that you very much want to happen not happening kind of over and over. And I guess I'm just wondering... Um, what are those moments of discouragement that are maybe hardest? I think the lowest points for us are every time we take a pregnancy test. And that's been pretty much every month. Um, and it's always been negative. And I think when we take the test and it's negative and I think, well, maybe I just need to wait longer to take it. But then my period comes and it's like, no, it didn't work. And so I think those have been the lowest points for me. Of course, there are times when I hear about people getting pregnant. For the most part, I've actually been pretty happy for my friends when I've heard that they're pregnant. And I try, I've, I've tried to be very conscious of my response to people when I hear that they're pregnant. I've seen a lot of people who are really bitter and they, they just get mad when they hear that others are pregnant and so they can't really rejoice with them. And I've, I think I've chosen not to do that. But then, of course, there are times when I think if I hear about one more person being pregnant, that's it, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, the stories that you hear of, of teenage pregnancies and people who get pregnant that wish they hadn't gotten pregnant. And it's just, it's hard to reconcile. Well, gosh, you know, why is here we are who are wanting to get pregnant and we can't? I think that's just a, a normal emotion, though, that comes with it. And yeah, so for both David and I have been the low points when we've been with our other our friends out playing or at birthday parties, and we see all their kids playing together. And I think it makes us a little sad that we don't have kids that are there playing with them too. And there's no kids that they're growing up with that are our friends' kids, and so. Um, that, that can be a little sad. You've had such an awareness of your body and the cycles of your body and how your body's functioning for the last two years, really been a big part of your life. I guess I'm, I'm also wondering how, how are you feeling about your body? Mm. You know, I think I got to a point where it felt like my body was just not working right and it felt broken and it felt like it couldn't be fixed. And that's disappointing. I think I'm still trying to understand that and learning how to cope with it and how to work with it and to be okay with it. I feel like, wow, my body is just not, it's not perfect. I wonder why, <laughs> you know, we're not, our bodies aren't perfect, but, um, <laughs> you know, I work in You're the hospital. You're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You know, I work in the hospital and I work with patients who have cancer and so many things are wrong with their bodies and I sit with them and I tell them, look, it's not your fault and it's nothing you've done and you're not in control and this has just happened and you're still a wonderful person and I have to be able to get to the point where I can tell myself that. 
so it's coming to terms with the um, the imperfectness of my body, which is so so normal. I mean, we are imperfect people, and so I think it's just realizing that and understanding it. And Dave is very loving and accepts it and accepts me me just how I am. So that's always a nice thing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think it is really hard though to be to be gracious with our bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in some ways these tools that we use to get through life, but but to really love and accept and be gracious with our bodies and their imperfections is is challenging. Mm-hmm. Kind of countercultural. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm wondering how the process has affected the way that that you think about sex. <laughs> yeah, it you know, that's a good point. It can really take a toll on the intimacy of the relationship. You know, you have to pretty much, okay, it's day 14, the ovulation test strip is positive, let's go. We have to have sex right now. And then the next day. And so it's just like you, I mean, it's not something that you can just get in the mood for right away. You had to be very intentional about making sure it didn't become a chore. Yeah, not too utilitarian. Yes, and not to lose the the um, spontaneity you know, the foreplay and making it more romantic and using mm. music and candles. I mean, really kind of going like, not, you know, like crazy extreme, but I don't know, just being more intentional. Um, and of course, it's not always that easy and it's not, it didn't always happen that way every time. There are definitely times when we are like, you know what, it's just not happening. And maybe a month was just, we didn't try one month because we just weren't there. And it was too stressful, and we were starting to argue and fight. And it's like, you know what? Nah, it's not. It's not that important for one. If we skip one month, it would be okay. But yeah, you have to just be very, very, very intentional about it. Make sure you're still connecting the physical, emotional, and spiritual levels, and not just, mm-hmm. it's not just an act. But you know, if it does work, you want to make sure that you're conceiving your child in a spirit of of love and compassion and and that that closeness that that oneness so so it's been a good learning learning process and we've gotten lots of practice in so (laughs) all right (laughs) (laughs) you know you are an ordained pastor and a chaplain and there are so many stories throughout scripture about barren women or women who have cried out to God for a child. And I, I guess I'm wondering if you're interacting with those stories or if those stories have new meaning for you after going through this experience for the last couple of years. I want to probably say yes and no. Yes, in that I've thought about those stories and I have looked at at the times when the women have cried out and prayed for a child. And I think, well, I, that's how I am. I've been praying and have been hoping. I think for me, I have that desire, but I also, it's, it's strange. I think I also am okay with the, with the idea of not having any kids. And so I, I don't think I've related that deeply with those stories because I'm not sure that is my soul heart's desire. There's other, other desires that I long for. It seems like an important distinction in the sense that there are there are many desires in your heart. Like there are many things that you love that are 
that are good that you are interacting with God about. And this is one of them, an important one, but not the only one. More broadly, has this experience reshaped your faith or your sense of God? Both David and I have just felt a deeper trust in God's will for our lives and purpose. I think there's a definitely a sense of letting go of control um, and just surrendering our hopes. And um, I think we've seen that God has been faithful in just walking it, you know, walking with us through this process and giving us the ability to be on the same page, which I really find it. I mean, I think that's the biggest blessing for me is that. We're both on the same page. And I think it would be really hard if one of us had just a very, very strong desire to have kids and the other one didn't. And we were fighting about what to do, but that has not been our experience. And so I feel like God has really helped us to be one in this in this journey. I think how God has given us peace about it has been really amazing. Um, we've had, you know, some rough times and like the surgery and then um, just all the tests that you have to go through. It can be very stressful. But after each time, you know, David has been like, you know what, we're going to be okay. Like this is going to be, it's okay. Regardless of if we have kids or not, we're going to have a great life. And that I just feel like God was speaking right through him directly and saying, I love you. I I value you regardless if you know there's if you have kids and you're important to me just as you are. So I feel like God's love has been revealed more through just our experience as husband and wife through this. It sounds like there really has been a, a deepening of your your partnership. You know that you are doing this together just as you would be if you were dealing with an infant together. You know, it sort of requires both of you to be a team and be on the same page and support each other. Definitely, yeah. How has this experience changed you? I think I'm more aware of what's important in life in a sense that has allowed me to become less anxious about it because there's so many other things going on in life that you know, are just so much more important. Not that not that having a child is not important, but I think, I guess because of my profession and being in the hospital and seeing, you know, how, how short life really is, that I, I feel like I don't want to get just caught up in this so much that I miss what else is going on around me. So I think it's helped me become more aware of other things going on in, in my life and in other people's lives. I've also, I think, become more sensitive to other people's journeys who are going through what I'm going through. And I can really, I think I can relate a little better and have a little bit more compassion and understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I think that's been probably the biggest thing. What do you, what do you wish others understood about this experience? Like, I, I can imagine, I mean, many things about parenthood and bodies and those kinds of things lend themselves to really thoughtless comments or people trying to be helpful, but they're not really helpful. How can others be helpful and supportive and not hurtful? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, well, not that I think, I know that 
it's not as simple as saying, oh, just don't stress about it, just relax. I think that is probably the least helpful thing anybody can say to a couple, especially a woman, <laughs> who is going through infertility. It, it's, I just feel like you just, don't, you just don't get it, is what I want to say to them. <laughs> I think that, and I think the most supportive thing has been just other, just our friends and family have just been saying, you know, we're praying for you. And I think just that affirmation and encouragement from others has been probably the best support that we can get. I think another thing that uh, I want people to know, too, is, you know, at some point those stories about successes in fertility, about those who have struggled and struggled, and then they just kind of said, okay, we're, we're stopping, and then they get pregnant. Or the stories about our couples who've adopted, and then, oh, my gosh, they're pregnant. And so I think after a while, those... Um, those stories, I think, for me, I hit a point where they were becoming more annoying than they were encouraging. And I was surprised because I've always loved hearing those kind of stories. And I think they're very hopeful. But there was one day when I just told my friend, I said, you know what? That is not helpful for me to hear. I am so sick of hearing those stories. Um, I've been praying. I've been trying to be faithful. You know, does God just not hearing my prayers? Like, I started to get really defensive and really upset, and luckily I was talking to a friend of mine who knows me pretty well, and she was able to, you know, to hear me and let me kind of get frustrated. Um, but it's just, it's funny how everybody just wants to tell you their stories about somebody they know who, you know, was going through the same thing, and then they just prayed, and they were faithful, and then God answered their prayers, and <laughs> and I'm, I, I don't doubt that one bit, and I know God is faithful, but it's just... It's just hard to hear those stories sometimes. And I hope I am one of those stories someday. But until then. <laughs> <laughs> they can be part of other people's stories. <laughs> what are you especially looking forward to about the possibility of being a mother? Mm. And that might be a, a harder question. but Yeah, no, you know, I probably haven't let myself go there a whole lot since we, we haven't been had much success. So, but I... I have, and, and at some points I have let myself go there, and I think I look forward to watching just my kids grow and develop and become the little personalities that they are, and I just, I have so much fun with kids, and they say the funniest things, or they do the funniest things, and I just hope that my kids can make me laugh. I think I'm excited to, um, to just be laughing at them and with them and just like if I'm having a really crappy day they'll say something really funny and it'll be like oh okay the day just got better and <laughs> um, and I think it just a chance to to nourish and make a real impact in another human being's life in in that way um, I know I can do that in adults and that's what I do but I think man this is a, a you know a new human being on this planet and they have so much to still learn and grow, and so how can I help them in that process? Um, I'm excited about that. And then I'm excited about seeing my husband being a dad. He's pretty good with kids, and I just I think that will bring me a lot of joy. I guess I also want to ask the other question, and what are you particularly hopeful for in terms of a life that may not involve having children? Like, what are your dreams that way? You know, David and I have been talking about that recently because we've, you know, we thought, okay, what if we don't have kids? And I think we're excited to still be able to 
express our maternal and paternal you know nature with other kids in our lives so I think we will definitely be intentional about being involved in our friends kids lives or in my nieces and nephews um, in any any families around us I think we will be purposeful in how we interact there will still be opportunities for us to be parents to other children I think we hope that if we don't have kids of our own that we would still be able to be, make an impact in children's lives. That we would love to be able to continue to travel and get up and go and I think not the idea of not having kids makes that so much easier. Um, <laughs> the possibility of doing short-term or long-term mission work too. Um, I know it's possible with kids but I think it's also a lot easier without and that might be something that David and I would would be interested in doing in the future and so we do have a lot of hopes. Seems like there are ways to make a really amazing life without children <laughs> if yeah. and even if that's not your first choice it's still right. very possible. It is, it is and I think that's what we want to keep in mind is that with or without kids we hope to still be able to live to the fullest and given our our gifts and our talents and our desires. That's kind of the end of the the questions that I had prepared to ask you, but I, I wonder if there's anything else that you want to say, anything that feels unfinished or maybe that I didn't ask you about but should have. Hmm. No, I know I think if I could add anything, just being able to express that this is such an emotional um, journey and sometimes I personally have a hard time I, t I tend to shut out the emotions at times when I'm telling the story and I think I'm working on being more emotionally connected to what's going on with me and David and not just get caught up in the, the steps of it mm. you know and the like going to the doctor's office there is nobody there to talk to you about the emotional part and as a chaplain I think this is really lacking and I would mm -hmm. love to be somebody who works in a fertility clinic who can talk to couples about the emotional spiritual component of things because when we went over the IVF information we met with the doctor the nurse and the financial counselor and there was nobody there that ever asked us how are you two doing in your relationship through all of this has this taken a toll has it helped you? How are you doing? And I think that is such an important component that at least down here in LA, in my experience, is lacking. Um, I think because of my my profession as a chaplain, I've been very open with my doctor. And he, when he was talking about the options that we have, I said, you know, um, there's two more options that you haven't talked about. And he said, well, what are those? And I said, adoption or not doing anything else. And he was like, oh, oh. Well, I said, yeah, you know, adoption is definitely a big option. And um, I think it's important that you talk about that with couples when they come in. And he said, yeah, you know, you're right, you're right. I guess I shouldn't leave adoption as the last resort. I, and I told him, I was pretty front, up front with him, I said, you know, I think you as a fertility doctor and your whole the whole fertility field would benefit from 
making sure they give all the options to their patients, even the one that says no more, you know, no more intervention. So <laughs> I think I kind of took him by surprise because I think living in LA, we are very atypical patients of his, where you know a lot of women that are coming in are over 40 or doing IVF, who you know will do everything they can to have a baby, and here we come in and say yeah, you know, we're not going to do IVF and we might not even have kids and we may consider adoption and I think it surprises him. Maybe he's used to people sort of want what they want yeah. when they want it and that's not you. Yeah, no. <laughs> so I think I would want others, you know, to know that in the infertility world that it's okay to to not ha- not to just exhaust all your options. You don't have to that to do that because it is literally exhausting um, to keep going back to the, the doctors you know you have to go certain times of, of the week and then this day and that day and it, it, it's exhausting that it's okay if you feel like you don't want to you know keep going love the way you're thinking about this because I think you're experiencing like this very modern body-soul dualism. Body is not producing baby. We have to problem-solve body, problem-solve body, and there's no integration of your soul or your heart or really your relationship mm-hmm. unless you make that happen on your own. Right. And it's it's such an odd process when you think about conceiving a child to sort of be in this culture, like this kind of infertility culture where it's very much focused on body without much depth or nuance or emotion and seems like it almost adds to the pain of it, especially for someone like you who's very attuned to soulfulness and relationship. Definitely. When when I was having the insemination done, the doctor and the nurse and my husband were all talking about high school reunions. And because I mentioned we're going to my high school reunion right after this. And I was laying there trying to breathe, trying to be calm, yet all this talk was going on around me about something completely unrelated to what was actually happening. And part of me wanted to just yell out, shut up, pay attention to me, I'm the patient here, or just be quiet, just stop talking. But I was also focusing on myself and trying to stay calm and breathe and just get through it. So I think if I ever had to do it again, I would be much more aware of my own needs and be able to express them more. Um, but it was it was really interesting. And after it was over, I just cried. I mean, I just was very emotional and just, just cried and cried and cried. And I was like, what was that? Why were you guys talking about the reunion? Like, hello? And <laughs> so it was, yeah, the whole emotional, spiritual, physical connection is so important to me. And I hope that other people going through this can have a voice and speak out and have their needs met. I wish it was more humane in that way. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I hope it felt okay. Awesome. It did. It did. Good. Get too emotional, so that's good. No. It'd been okay if I did, but I didn't. So I just want to say thank you so much for interviewing me and asking me these questions and helping me process and get in touch with the soulful part of this journey. So I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I, I think it takes a lot of courage to, 
to do an interview like this, especially about something that's so vulnerable. Thank you. This is the end of my interview with Ruth Clayton. Our conversation took place a couple of weeks before this podcast was posted on the internet. In a follow-up conversation to our interview, Ruth let me know that the intrauterine insemination was not successful. So she and David are still waiting, still hoping, and still trying to enjoy life as it is right now. If you want to respond to this interview with Ruth, you can always post comments on our website, parentingreimagined.org, or on our Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening to Parenting Reimagined. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting Reimagined. If you like what you heard, visit our website, parentingreimagined.org, and sign up for our mailing list. You can also like us on Facebook. Thanks for taking the time to be part of this community of parents who's committed to learning the deeper lessons of parenting. 